In the studio with Michael Card, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Welcome to our program today. Michael, we often talk about uh, the value of mentors and teachers, and mm-hmm. through our conversations together, you've mentioned a number of people, primarily Dr. Bill Lane. Yes. Yeah, and, and uh, one of the, the big um, what-ifs in, in my life that never happened, uh, I studied with Bill in, hopefully, in preparation to, to move on and then uh, study with uh, Dr. Bruce Waltke, and that never happened. That's one of the big regrets in my, sort of my misspent youth, and, uh, uh, and he's here with us uh, today, and I'm so excited that he's we'll here. We'll talk to uh, Bruce in just a moment, but just generally, the, the value of, I mean, I know how much you appreciate uh, good, good Bible teachers, people who bring the Word to bear in your life. I certainly appreciate people who have a lot of biblical knowledge, but I think through Bill what I learned to appreciate even more is um, men and women who uh, incarnate mm. uh, that, who, who live it out, because I'm convinced that that's the only way that we ever truly get it. Mm. Uh, I'm, I, I'm convinced that, that that's why the incarnation happened the way it did. So teaching becomes mentoring, or it should at some right. point. Right. Yeah. We have to see it lived out. It, it's tests and lists and quotes and, and sort of regurgitating information certainly has its place. I I'm, I'm don't want to knock that, but uh, I think Jesus, above all, teaches us that there's nothing more powerful than to see someone live what they teach. Uh, of course, in Jesus' case, he lived it perfectly, but uh, even those of us who live it out less perfectly, I think, can make a tremendous mm-hmm. impact. And mm-hmm. that happened certainly with Bill, and my hope was it would have, and, and I know it would have happened with uh, Bruce Walke, but you know, you can't have everything. <laughs> but he has written commentaries yes. and uh, has uh, other materials available, so yeah. you can avail yourself of those. Yes, I'm working through a, a tape series on Genesis of his right now, and he just told me I need to get the commentary. So after <laughs> after we're done here, I'll pop out and get that, and I'll be on my way. By the way, as we introduce our guest today, let me remind our listeners that we're on the web at michaelcard.com. And you talk about Bible study. We have Bible study resources available there on the yes, web. We so mm-hmm. please visit us, uh, even during the program, if you have computer access, Michael mm-hmm. Card. Also coming up later on the program today is someone that you have wanted to talk with for a long time because you talk to me about her book all the time. Yes, Kathleen Erickson, who's written a wonderful book on the spiritual life of Vincent van Gogh. And she's going to be with us uh, talking more in depth about uh, what's behind uh, the art and how how misunderstood uh, this person was. I think that'll be fascinating. Yes. We'll look forward to that in the second half of today's program. Well, let's introduce our guest, Dr. Bruce Walke, who is uh, with Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida, also teaches at Regent in Vancouver. Uh, Dr. Walke, Bruce, welcome in the studio with us. Thank you. Good to be with you all. Let's talk about the book of Proverbs here today with Dr. Walke, Michael. Yeah, um, you were mentioning before, Bruce, that uh, as you open your class, uh, you ask your students uh, what Proverbs they know, and you said the answer uh, comes back uh, fairly frequently that only two or three. That's about right. And I suspect that's probably quite broadly true of the whole church, much to our loss, Mm. I should add. Mm. What are the, the most commonly... Uh, quoted proverbs when you ask yeah, your well, students. Yeah, what the students come back to me with is pretty much what I would expect. Uh, most know the um, theme of the book, the key to the book, one seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And the second one they know, and I know some who have made this their, uh, their life text, is uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Uh, do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Mm-hmm. Usually translated, acknowledge him. And um, the old King James has, and he will direct your path. I think the NIV has, he will make your path straight, mm-hmm. which is a little bit better. And the third one is uh, 22 6, uh, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from Oh, it. yes. Every, every student yeah. knows that one, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Those are the three. And uh, I'm. Most of them are misunderstood, by the way, mm. or not not misunderstood, but just not adequately understood. Well, well, those, I thought those were all three uh, fairly straightforward uh, lessons. I mean, at least when they were uh, when I was beat about the head and shoulders with them as a as a young person, I thought uh, mm-hmm. they were fairly easy to understand. But you're saying they're not. Well, I'm I wonder how many people understand what the fear of the Lord is. For example, mm. I find I'm often asked that question. Even after I explain it sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and what does it mean to trust in the Lord with all your heart? Mm. What does it mean in that context? 
and it ties in with the fear of the Lord, hmm. both of them. They're very closely related because, if we get into this, the fear of the Lord entails objective revelation. It isn't just something emotional. Hmm. It has cognitive aspect, a thought aspect, a content aspect. And, uh, for example, in uh, Psalm 19, the uh, law of the Lord, statutes of the Lord, precepts of the Lord, uh, fear the Lord command of the Lord, they're all parallel. Mm -hmm. And so fear of the Lord in Psalm 19 is parallel with the law of the Lord. Hmm. Or Proverbs 2, my son, if you accept my words, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. You cannot have the fear of the Lord without special revelation. Hmm. And so that's what I mean. I think that most, I doubt we can get that straight out of the English text. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we can be helped, that the fear of the Lord is the teaching of this book. Hmm. That's only part of the answer, however, that it entails uh, a brokenness, uh, a humility to accept it so that it becomes part of your life. The fact of the matter is, uh, when you were saying earlier about mentors, you don't have wisdom simply as cognition or as a cognitive factor. Hmm. You don't have wisdom by memorizing this book, though that's important. It entails uh, knowing, experiencing, imbibing. Um, you don't know riding a bike by reading about a bike. Mm -hmm. You only know riding a bike when you get on it and you risk it and maybe even fall a few times. Mm -hmm. But when you experience it, then you know. Mm. And wisdom is the same way, that we can have all the content, but unless we risk ourselves on it, uh, capture its vision, and lean on it, and live on it, we don't know it, and we're not wise. So what you said in the beginning is extremely important. And so the fear of the Lord is that objective revelation, but it's a brokenness to accept it, to trust it, to live by it. So, for example, at the end of chapter 15, the parallel to the fear of the Lord is humility. Mm -hmm. And the Hebrew word means to be broken, hmm. to accept it. Or Proverbs 22, 4 where he talks about the fear of the Lord. And then the most translations and, 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 and humility, but there's no and in the Hebrew text. It simply says, the fear of the Lord. The uh, Oh, no, it says humility and the fear of the Lord. But what it says is humility, the fear of the Lord sort, mm -hmm. where you are subjected to it. So that's what's entailed in the fear of the Lord. And then the third thing of fear of the Lord, not only is it that objective revelation and our subjective brokenness before it, but it's really tied up with trust that God has in his hands our, our lives and our death. And the book is not concerned just with this life. Life in, this, in the book of Proverbs is eternal life. Mm -hmm. And death is a death now and a death that goes on forever, mm. alienated, separated from God. So that's the death. And when we understand that, that as we respond to God's revelation, whatever form, but especially in Jesus Christ, as we respond to that revelation, the issue is life and death. And so therefore that entails real awe, real fear, the realization that if I do not respond, my life is in his hands. Hmm. and we will respond accordingly. We usually think of fear as something that repulses. We draw away from a person we fear. But in the Old Testament, the person who fears the Lord loves God, trusts hmm. God, because he takes God seriously. Hmm. He believes in God. So they're not antithetical at all, loving God and fearing God. We love him for his promises. We fear him for his threats, because we trust him. He's not a God who lies to us. So those are the three ideas that I understand the fear of the Lord in this book. And if we get those ideas, it will work wherever we read that expression. 
Doc, Dr. Walkie, is there a, a question implied in 1-7? I mean, it, it's always forced me to ask the question, if, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning, then what's the end? Is that, is that oh, implied at all? Question. Yeah. Well, the word could mean the beginning in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more probably, we should think not of a racer, a uh, runner on a horizontal track with a beginning. We should think rather of a person climbing a ladder mm. at the first rung of the ladder. Mm. And you take that out, the whole thing falls down. Uh-huh. That's the idea of it. It probably is it's the foundation of everything. Mm. That the whole teaching that trust in the Lord with all your heart and he will make your way blessed, that's a faith posture. So that it's not a beginning that you leave behind. Mm-hmm. It's a beginning on which everything rests. So it's like the word, actually in Latin, fundamentum, Mm -hmm. means the base. And that's how that word is used. So that is foundational to entering into the whole realm of knowledge Mm. of this book. And without that commitment, you cannot enter the book. That's why it's right at the gateway to the book. Mm -hmm. Because another way of saying it is, is what the alphabet is to reading, what notes are to music, the fear of the Lord is to wisdom. Hmm. You're not going anywhere until you can read it hmm. uh, spiritually. So, and that's part of the problem I have with a lot of biblical study. It, all too often, it's simply learning about history and words and so forth. But mm-hmm. that's to miss it, mm-hmm. and we'll never know God that way. That's why many students go to school when they come out dry. Yeah, because they lost that relational aspect. Hmm. And that's foundational. And Dr. Lane used to talk about engaging with the text at the level of the imagination. Yeah, um, that's good. It, it really did come alive. Well, I have one other question. You, something that I've recently uh, seen in the life of Simon Peter is that a- frequently after Jesus will reveal himself in a new way, uh, on uh, the mir- first miraculous catch of fish or the transfiguration, and, and there's a couple of other passages, what Jesus always says to Peter is, don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. And you said something about uh, the, the revelation of God and, 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 and coming to know God better. And, and I wonder if there's a connection there. As, as, mm-hmm. as I learn who God is more, I mean, Jesus' response to Peter is, okay, don't be afraid. Yeah. But, fear, but fear is, I mean, the kind of fear that Jesus is talking about perhaps, I, I don't know, I'm, 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 taking, a, I'm yeah. taking big shots here. Yeah. Can you make sense? I suspect that kind of that's kind of fear that's apart from faith. Uh-huh. Of really trusting God. So a different kind of fear. It's a different kind. Of, it's it's, a, it's just fear. Mm-hmm. It isn't involved with trust. That's why you get that other passage of trust in the Lord with all your heart. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of fear that grows out of faith that I really can trust God. Mm-hmm. The, the, see these others he say fear not because he's going to give them a promise mm-hmm. or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, John will say he casts out perfect fear, for mm-hmm. example. And mm-hmm. that's different, again, because when we're not living right and not walking in love with God and with others, uh, then there's a uh, reason to fear. A good reason to fear. A good reason mm-hmm. to fear. But uh, when perfect love and we're living with integrity, it casts out all fear. Mm-hmm. Our conscience commends us and does not condemn us. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's a call to really uh, trust him all the way. Mm. This really is very helpful as we talk with Dr. Bruce Walke today here on our program in the studio with Michael Card. And we're looking at the book of Proverbs. Um, Michael, uh, I realize our time is not as long as it needs to be to mm-hmm. come to grips with so much of the truth here. But I wonder if we can pause for just a moment and uh, ask you to sing a song for us. Mm-hmm. Because you have a song that you've written called The Way of Wisdom, which mm-hmm. comes right from these same pages. Yeah, this this is a song about uh, wisdom uh, becoming a person. That possessing wisdom is something uh, that we possess by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God. All right, Michael Card in the studio now with his song, The Way of Wisdom. The way of wisdom starts out with a step of holy fear And it makes its way along by every good word that you hear It has to do with passion and it has to do with pain It has to do with one who has both died and rose again Died and rose again 
The way of understanding lies in not how much you know For the pathway is a person that you come to love And so you can stop pretending that it all depends on you It's not how much you love as much as how much he loves you How much he loves you And the way of wisdom is living The path of peace is forgiving Behold the man of meaning Behold he is the Lord The way of wisdom beckons us to find the end of fear That perfect love pursues Wisdom did not come to simply speak the words of truth. He's the word that makes us true. And the way of wisdom is living. The path of peace is forgiving. Behold the man of meaning. Behold, he is the Lord. Thank you, Michael, the way of wisdom. And Bruce, while Michael was singing, I was looking at the first few verses of Proverbs 2, which says in the New Living Translation, tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and understanding. Search for them as you would for lost money or hidden treasure. Then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord and you will gain knowledge of God for the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and Understanding, Boy, that fits right in with both the song and what we're talking about here today, Bruce. Uh, that's the way one gets wisdom and the fear of the Lord is the whole idea of, um, I think it must have begun with verse 2. Mm-hmm. Verse 1 begins with, uh, to accept it, accept my words. Sure. It says here in this translation, my child, listen to me and treasure my instructions. Yes, uh, but they listen to me. Uh, the word is lakach, uh, which means to accept, and that takes trust. Mm. That it seems so simple to the believer. <laughs> we do it so naturally because that's our basic nature. We're children who trust parents, but uh, it's unnatural, says Paul and John. It's proof we're born again. Is when we accept it into our hearts and store it up. You see, if you accept it, and then the, the next word means to prize it and store it up as a as, as treasure. So you're feeding upon it, and then comes and incline your ear to it. But in Proverbs, it means to this book. In the canon of Scripture, of course, it all points to Christ. Mm. That's how they are related, uh, that we trust him, as the song says, because he first loved us. That was the question I had for you was, then what does it mean uh, when we say that Jesus is the wisdom of God? Yeah, that's out of Paul, and he's talking about the way of salvation. Mm -hmm. And he's talking there against the Greek way, us looking for this uh, wisdom in their sense of um, some kind of rhetoric skill. But what we preach is uh, Christ, his crucifixion, Mm -hmm. resurrection, death, burial. And that's the wisdom of God. Mm for our salvation. So when when you read uh, like the personification of wisdom mm-hmm. the the what what Proverbs 8 does. Yeah. Uh and I've always longed to connect that directly to Christ and say yeah. I yeah. mean is that not appropriate then? The church has done that ever since the council of Chalcedon, but I think exegetically it's a diff- the New Testament never makes that connection. Mm-hmm. As I understand those personifications of wisdom it's in 120 through 33 and 822 through 31 where you have these uh, wisdom standing at the gate. Right, and the, the, uh, the contrast between the woman, the, the bad woman and the good woman sort of a that's thing. That's in chapter 7, yeah. yeah, the bad woman in chapter 7. Yeah. Uh, what's going on there is the book of Proverbs is, is addressed to two people. It's addressed to the wise and it's addressed to the gullible, hmm. the, the uncommitted, especially uncommitted young people. Hmm. And uh, as you go through the prologue, the first nine chapters, you have ten uh, lessons in the home, of the father to the son, beginning with one eight, my son, listen to your father's instruction and uh, discipline, do not forsake your mother's teaching. And so you get that lesson in chapter two, my son, chapter three, my son, and then on through, you know, mm-hmm. 
320-41-410, so forth. All the way, you got these ten lessons to the sun, who's mm. considered wise. You see, the wise, let the wise listen. And then the first word of 1-8 is, listen, my son. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another audience, and that's in 1-4, and that's the gullible. Mm. Uh, that's translated naive, simpleton, and so forth. But I think gullible is the right word mm-hmm. for the <laughs> Both addresses of personification of wisdom are addressed to the gullible ah. in the city gate, before they enter the city gate. They should have made a commitment within the home but they haven't made that commitment yet. Mm. And they better address wisdom and accept her before they enter that city. And they're tempted by easy sex Mm. and easy money. So it is a personification of this book's teachings. I see. So that's, the, women wisdom, that's who woman wisdom is. So in chapter 1, when the wise woman cries out in the streets, she cries out to the simpleton. That's what it says. Yeah. Ah, okay. She's crying out to the fools. Oh, I've never seen that before. Yeah, she's crying out to the simpletons. <laughs> and it's also true in chapter 8, if you begin the chapter, it's mm-hmm. to all men. Again, at the gate. See, that's where that's addressed. Ah. And they have to make a choice at the gate of the city. Because once they're in and they're mature now, and they're potentially marriageable and so forth. Mm. That decision should have been made before this. Well, now so, I have to go back all the way back through Proverbs and read it with this, with this insight. It's, it's amazing. Are you thanking Dr. Walkie here? Or? <laughs> well, w- more work for me, but, yeah. but that's, I've, never, I've never heard that. I've never seen that. Mm-hmm. Well, take a look at it, and uh, it's really it's a profound, profound book. Mm. And uh, it's, uh, I was thinking, as you were singing your song about wisdom and so forth, how we can't get it on our own because we don't see everything. That's in Proverbs 30 with the words of Agur. Mm. And he's saying that uh, I, I try to find it, but I couldn't get it. Mm. And the reason you can't get it on your own is you can't live skillfully unless you see the whole. Mm. And when I was a kid, for example, uh, factory smoke was good. That was prosperity. Mm-hmm. Now we know it's bad. Uh-huh. Uh, eggs every morning with bacon for breakfast, that was good. Mm-hmm. Now it's bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> but now I hear it's coming back again. <laughs> but what I'm only saying is, unless you see the whole, you can't live skillfully. Mm-hmm. You can't have wisdom. And that's why, apart from revelation, we're lost. So that's why in Ecclesiastes, Psalm, wisdom was a dead end for him. Yeah. Yeah. Under the sun. Mm. It, it was, the whole thing was absurd. He couldn't come anywhere, get anywhere. Mm. And that's what I was talking about. And I heard that coming through in your song mm. as well, mm. that uh, it takes that person. See, what happens in Agra, he says, uh, who's gone up to heaven and come down? An ancient Near Eastern expression of the gap between heaven and earth. Who's created the ends of the earth? Mm. Who holds the, uh, he talks about the wind and the, in, in your fist and the water in your robe. That means the rain that sustains the life. Mm. Who, who controls that? And then he says, who, what is his name? And what's the name of his son? Mm. Surely you know, well, the one who has it all, who, who's created it all, knows the ends of the earth, knows everything from the beginning, is God. Mm-hmm. He's the only one. And who's his son? Well, in this book, the son is always the disciple, the student, Mm -hmm. the pupil. It's Israel, and it's us. Mm. And you have to name the God of the triune God of the Bible, your God. And you have to identify yourself as his son in Christ today. Mm -hmm. And then you know wisdom. Mm. You're on your way to wisdom. Wow. That also helps to answer a question that I have, Dr. Walkie, and that is that throughout the book of Proverbs, we read about renewed health and vitality, even Mm -hmm. wealth. And I think in this age when we want to avoid the prosperity gospel, that we minimize those passages. Do we we misapply? Do we misunderstand? Well, I think the the book is, I, I think it's certainly saying that, and it doesn't have any terminus on it. In other words, if you live this way, uh, you will experience wealth, health, and prosperity. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. And I think we would agree that's partly realized in this life. I mean, in other words, you wouldn't say that's true of the... It's true of the sober, not of the drunkard. Mm-hmm. It's, true, uh, it's true of the uh, calm person, not the, right. not the hothead. It's true of the diligent person. That's part not, of the common sense of wisdom, right? Yeah. Uh, see, the problem is that is this is a primer immorality. It looks at the end, 
And it throws away the gapping between virtue and its rewards. You see, for example, in 24, 15, and 16, it says, although a righteous man falls seven times, he will rise. Mm. That's an interesting expression, he will rise. In other words, he's out. Uh, we would say he's out on the mat for the count of ten. Mm-hmm. But that's not his end. He will rise. And, in fact, the matter is it looks to a life beyond the grave. 1228, along that path, oh, I see. is immortality. 1432, um, it talks about the even in his death, in his death, the righteous man seeks a refuge in the Lord. So the problem is we read the book as this life and not mm. we have a eschatology that's this life that life mm-hmm. that is not this book this book life is forever wow. and there's a gapping between virtue and its uh, rewards you know i think what may be happening to our listeners is what you said a moment ago michael and that is that now we want to get back we want to read proverbs all right. over again don't we i hope that's what's happening in every in everyone else's heart <laughs> Dr. Bruce Walke, our guest uh, for these few moments here in the studio with us with uh, Michael Card. Uh, this is frustrating. <laughs> because? Because there's so much more, yeah. and, uh, and, and we, we skim over the top. But I, I hope, uh, as you said, this is, uh, this is going to be an incentive uh, for all of us to dig in. Oh, by the way, I will be having a commentary coming out with Erdman's in the uh, New International Commentary Old Testament ah. on Proverbs. When will uh, that come out? It could be out about a year from now, ah. Lord willing. I've been working in the book for 25 years. Oh, gee. Wow. I hope it's a gift to the church. Mm. I wrote it as a gift to the church. Mm. Well, our thanks to Dr. Bruce Walke for giving us a fresh look into Proverbs today in the studio with Michael Card. If our Bible study has stirred up a few questions, then why not send them our way when you get in touch with us? Send your email to studio at michaelcard.com. And if you'd like to listen to this program again or order a copy on CD of this or any In the Studio broadcast, then log on to www.michaelcard.com. Coming up in the second half, we'll have an amazing discussion of the spiritual life of painter Vincent Van Gogh. All this and more here on the Moody Broadcasting Network. We are in the studio with Michael Card. Welcome to this portion of our program. I'm Wayne Shepherd. And Michael, as we begin, you're holding a book that you've talked to me quite a bit about over the last few months. Right. It's called At Eternity's Gate, The Spiritual Vision of Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, Van Gogh's always interested me uh, just as a Christian and, and as an artist. Uh, let me read a quote, something he said that's uh, in the conclusion of the book. This is something that uh, Van Gogh said about uh, Jesus. He said, He lived serenely as a greater artist than all other artists, despising marble and clay as well as color, working in living flesh. Mm. Uh, this is a wonderful book, uh, some uh, color plates of uh, uh, paintings by Van Gogh that I'd never seen, a still life of the Bible and uh, illustration of uh, uh, Pietas in there, the raising of Lazarus. I'd never seen those things. And we have the author of this book, uh, Kathleen Erickson, with us. We do. Kathleen, welcome. Hi. Uh, it's unusual for us to have this picture of Vincent Van Gogh. Are you finding that people respond that way when they read the book? Yes, I think for the Pieta, for example, which is a self-portrait of Van Gogh as Christ um, languishing, dying in the arms of, of the Virgin Mary, these aren't paintings that are very often depicted in art books, and most people don't see them. They don't tend to travel outside of the Netherlands, although they were in the exhibit here in Chicago, which was very good at the Art Institute on Gauguin and, and Van Gogh. But most people are quite surprised to see some of the overtly religious subjects that Van Gogh painted. Did he just treat religious subjects, or you're convinced that he actually had this spiritual connection with the Lord, right? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, it, it was something a little bit different. I mean, given the time that he was in and the upheaval in the church that occurred in the 19th century, it branched off into evangelical and liberal uh, aspects, and Van Gogh is, is kind of in the middle of that controversy. And so um, he struggled with many of these issues, and he actually left the church and didn't go back to the church once he became an artist. And that is a source of, of misunderstanding by art historians because they seem to feel that simply because he left the church physically 
that he stopped uh, being a man of faith, and that isn't true. And my whole book uh, refutes that argument. Well, would you talk to us, just give us a, a, a brief background on, on his, uh, his preparation for ministry. Uh, I know for a time he was a minister uh, in the coal mine region. Mm-hmm. Uh, could he was you a just... missionary there. Actually, um, Van Gogh's uh, training for the ministry was a little bit unique. First of all, he had within his family tree a number of distinguished ministers. And um, within his family tree, they, were, they tended to gravitate either toward art or religion as their field of endeavor, either being artists, sculptors, or art dealers, or going into the ministry. His father and grandfather were both very well-respected Dutch pastors within the Dutch Reformed Church, but they were in the Arminian branch, so they were not uh, Calvinists. And that was some, that's a misconception that Van Gogh was a Calvinist. It's a misconception uh, in Europe that he was Catholic. Uh, but, in fact, he was raised in the Dutch Reformed Church in uh, a very unique branch of it called the Groningen School, and his father was a proponent of that thought. And it's somewhat complicated, so we won't be able to go into it here. Mm-hmm. But it gives us an idea of how he straddled between the evangelical and the liberal tenets of the church. But he seems to, I argue in my book, and I think it's it's very convincing in his letters, he seems to have had a conversion experience. And we know that he attended the revivals of um, Moody, for instance, and Sankey in London. He talked about the great revivalist preachers, and he was very drawn to the evangelical church. And that was not respected within his family. So that caused a break with the family. Now, after he became evangelical, that's when he did his missionary work in the Belgian coal mining district called the Borinage. I was interested in, in the struggle that he had there uh, with the uh, institutional church. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted him to maintain a certain lifestyle, uh, whereas Van Gogh wanted to live uh, like Christ with at the level of the people. Could you talk about that? Well, he took the gospel very literally, and um, that meant that you give up material things and you preach the gospel to the poor. And so if he had clothes, he gave them away. He, if he had food, he gave it away. He was one of the few that we know of who ever went into the mines when there were accidents, and there were many accidents where people were terribly burned, and he would go into the mines and try and save these people. So his ministry was very successful among the people to whom he ministered. Mm-hmm. They respected him. He converted people, and he, he found the work very fulfilling. The problem was the hierarchy of the church did not find any of that behavior acceptable. Mm. He didn't look right. He was dirty. He wasn't dressed well. He, he was thin. He, was, he didn't eat. And uh, this just was not acceptable for, for a pastor. And so they did not give him a contract. And he stayed uh, there for some time on his own with no support at all until he was completely emaciated and and spent, and his father came to take him back home. Hmm. When exactly, then, did the break occur with uh, more institutional Christianity? Was that the time that it happened? Well, there were a couple of events. That certainly was a major event, and yes, it did happen about that time when he was rejected by the hierarchy of the Church, and he considered that very hypocritical because he felt he was, in fact, practicing the gospel. And the other issue with the hierarchy is they didn't consider him to be the most eloquent of preachers because he was, after all, speaking in a a language that was not his native tongue. Mm. He was trying to speak French, but he was, in fact, Dutch. And he did speak and translate in several languages. He actually translated the Bible into four different languages. Mm. But it's not likely that his French accent was very good. But in any event, he believed that the gospel was practice, not preaching. Mm. Uh, that was his emphasis, not so much on the word, but the practice and the service. He was he was somewhat, as they joked, a friend of his joked that he was a medievalist because he was mo- more like St. Francis of Assisi. Mm. And so that was one problem. The other problem, he had a very famous uncle uh, that I talk about in my book, Johannes Stricker, and he, Van- Vincent Van Gogh, fell in love with Stricker's only daughter, surviving daughter, Kay, after her husband died. Her husband was also a preacher. And Vincent pursued her and pursued her, and there's no indication at all that she had any interest, and in fact, there's much indication to the contrary. And yet, Vincent blamed her father for, not, for keeping them apart. Mm. And, and they were very close. 
um, Stricker and, and Vincent were very close. But Vincent felt that when he started to pursue his daughter, it was a different matter, mm-hmm. and he was shut out. So that was an event. And some events with his father. We know that his father actually tried to have him interned into um, an asylum mm-hmm. in Belgium. And, of course, that caused a break in the family. So these were injuries, personal injuries, that were all at the hands of the clergy. And he... he took it very badly, and he just left the church, and it became a symbol in his painting of hypocrisy, the inside of a church. Mm-hmm. So we know in Starry Night, for instance, it's the only building in the landscape that has no light emanating from inside it. And he often remarked about the inside of a church, the whitewashed walls, the hypocrisy, the coldness of the inside of a church. So that, that's the uh, reason for the break. Well, now, as 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 Vincent was excluded from uh, the Christian community, at least at, at one level, through his family and through uh, through the institutional church, uh, my sense is that he then became hungry for uh, community in other areas, uh, perhaps with other artists. Is, do you see that in his life as well? Yes, that's very true. It's interesting, for instance, when he wanted to build his studio in the South, um, when he wanted to bring artists to the studio that he um, wanted 12 artists. Hmm. And he painted, he had set up 12 chairs to represent these 12 artists. Now, he was one of them. He didn't consider himself the Messiah. He considered himself a disciple. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that he would choose that imagery. And even within that, um, his image of the berceuse, which is, is the woman rocking the baby cradle, which is an image of a Madonna, many people look at it that way, was one of the images that he had on the wall in the studio and surrounded by the sunflowers, which are symbols of devotion to God. So his sense of community has certainly a very strong spiritual bent to it. Um, He did, as was typical in 19th century, find communion with nature as a way of being uh, connected to God. Mm -hmm. And so he went from the inside of the church as a place of meeting God to the outside, and he found um, among the poor, the peasants, prostitutes, and people that were the outcasts of society, a kind of community, along with other artists as well. Well, Kathleen, I'm sorry our time is growing short. I do want to mention, Michael, that at our website, we have a link to Kathleen's website. So mm-hmm. if you go to michaelcard.com and click on links, you'll find a, a connection there with Kathleen. The book, unfortunately, is out of print called At Eternity's Gate. Uh, but I know how much you have enjoyed reading this book, Michael. I guess a last question for you, Kathleen, is if if you could sum up, what what would be a lesson of the life of Vincent van Gogh that we should consider today? What would that be? a lesson that, that we can learn from his life. He suffered a great deal. Um, he had a very difficult road. But he always maintained a faith both in the afterlife and a faith in God's deliverance. And that has been completely neglected by art historians who see him as a very somewhat of a pessimistic figure, but he was not that way. And in his last painting to the Pieta, this is an image of the sun coming up over the cliffs, and he's representing himself as Christ dying, but as we know, Christ was resurrected, and this is his sense of hope. So in his latest paintings in particular, you get this very strong hope for the afterlife and for the eternal presence and and the deliverance of God. Well, it is a rich experience to think of the life of this artist in terms of his faith. And, Michael, thanks for bringing that to our attention. Yeah, and thank you, Kathleen, for this book, because it it does. It brings uh, Van Gogh back into the Christian community as as sort of one of our own that we can appreciate. And uh, I know his life came uh, came alive uh, for me through this book. So thank you for writing it. Well, you're very welcome. I'm glad you read it and enjoyed it. And Michael, the song that we've been thinking about in connection with this, a song of yours, is called Holy God, We Praise Thy Name, a song of worship. Uh, you must see the connection here between uh, the song and what we've talked about. Yeah, yeah and especially appreciate Kathleen's words about Van Gogh's uh, finding meaning in his suffering and, and the way uh, there was a redemptive understanding that he, uh, only because he was a believer mm-hmm. in Christ, was able to bring to uh, to his life. Mm-hmm. Well, Shanoa Sykes joins us in the studio with her violin now as Michael sings this song for us. Holy God, we praise thy name. Holy God, we praise thy name. 
Michael, we've had a couple of great guests today, our mm-hmm. creativity segment of the program uh, with Kathleen Erickson, and then earlier, our commentary section with Bruce Waltke. But let's spend a few minutes talking about community here today. And mm-hmm. I want our listeners to uh, know how to pray for you and your family during this season of life and just what's going on in your life th- at this time. Well, I, I appreciate that. I sort of consider myself a, a prayer beggar. I'm always mm-hmm. asking for uh, for prayer and, and the ministry that I'm involved with really runs on prayer. As, mm-hmm. as Denny says, everything begins and ends with prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're on the road a lot now, and uh, I always ask for prayer for my wife, uh, who who has so much uh, greater burden put on her when I leave. Um, and and uh, my consistent uh, uh, request for myself is for strength. As you get older, it doesn't get any easier <laughs> to you know to sleep on a bus overnight from uh, from city to city. So uh, that I think that's my uh, my central prayer uh, for our family right now, and and a prayer for our community. Uh, God continues to uh, build uh, and and shape the community here in Franklin. Uh, the racial reconciliation work that His uh, Spirit is doing is is ongoing, and it doesn't get any easier. Mm-hmm. We're working away. As you've said before, you're getting down to uh, the hard issues now yeah. after having spent some time together. Are you still teaching Bible studies at the Franklin House? Yeah, I teach on Tuesday nights, and we have a class on, uh, it's broadly on the life of Jesus. And uh, with that uh, title, then I can teach through Gospels, I can do Christ in the Old Testament, and uh that's generally what I do. We've talked uh, much on the program about community, and your uh, you've stressed to us the importance of it. Is this something that has gradually come alive in you through the years, or did you recognize when you came here and started the ministry a long time ago that this was important to you? I think there are moments all along. Um, I think as a, as a young person growing up, I was, like a lot of young people, I was really hungry for community. And unfortunately, they're, they're false uh, 
um, uh, imitators of community that you uh, find yourself in mm-hmm. that don't feed uh, yeah. your soul the way real Christian community does. Mm-hmm. People who want something from you and sort of take advantage of you at times. Sure, yeah. and, and, and just frankly clicks, you know, of young people that get together and, and uh, Christ isn't at the heart of that uh, little community. Uh, I think the first experience I had of, of genuine community was in college when I had uh, uh, a professor or two who really loved the students well and would invite us to their homes for for meal fellowship. Uh, meal fellowship became sort of a serious category uh, with with Bill Lane, and uh, and then you know then then you leave that community in college, and again there was sort of a, a I think a a wilderness time for my wife and I as we came back to Franklin and tried to find community again. Finally found families like the Rollies and, and the Densons, mm-hmm. and God gave us community again. Mm-hmm. I know there are people that are listening who are, who are in, in those various stages as well. Right. I mean, if you're, if you're enjoying a Christ-centered community, you just uh, don't take it for granted because mm-hmm. I think there are cycles in our lives where uh, we, we are out of community for, for different reasons, a wilderness period, mm-hmm. and then and we're back in. But if we find ourselves outside the walls of community, we've talked about the concept of those walls, uh, yeah. and that's, that defines community before. Right. If we're outside those walls, um, the, the place God wants us to be is inside community, not outside. Yeah, and I think sometimes the, the, when we find ourselves outside of the protective walls of, of a church community or, or the kind of community that we're talking about, uh, the, the purpose is invariably so that we can have closer community with God himself. Mm. I mean, that's why he calls us to the wilderness, so uh, he can reaffirm us as his sons and daughters so that we can learn all over again how much we need him and, and how much we want and we desire to have communion with him because, I mean, real Christian community, uh, the community that you and I share together, Wayne, is based on our individual commune, communing mm-hmm. uh, with God. So uh, communion is always the basis of community. If someone's listening, though, and they say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a person, I, I kind of like my private life. I kind of like to be alone, left alone sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I I wouldn't know because people say that for different reasons. I mean, I say that myself a lot. I'm sort of a loner. My wife is sort of a loner. I don't think that means that uh, you you become a hermit. Uh, certainly, a lot of us like uh, solitude because we like to spend time with the Lord and and be be quieter and be away from busyness. I don't think community necessarily means busyness and noise. Community. Um, uh, I think Tony Campola would say that the that the community, the spending time together with the brothers and the sisters, is what prepares us to then go and be alone with mm-hmm. God. I mean, it works both ways. But uh, so for the people that would say that sort of thing, uh, I would say, okay, you enjoy being alone, you enjoy your solitude. That time will be much richer as you learn to engage with brothers and sisters at the level of Christian yeah. community. The goal is not to uh, be isolated. The goal no. is to be in community, and it's so much a richer experience, and as you said, that brings us uh, to God. It, it, the goal is to be what we are, which is a body. Yeah. We are parts of a body. That's a very, very biblical, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, uh, and so I don't think there's, there's, there's an excuse for... Uh, a complete uh, lonerism. Uh, we're, we belong to each other, and God has put us in a body because he knows we need each other, but most especially he knows we need him. You know, the fact that we're doing this program together each week is, in a way, community. It's not community in the ultimate sense of the word, and we yeah. don't mean for it to be ultimate community. No, we don't, but but uh, I think this this uh, radio program is a reflection of the community that we have together, you and and. Kenny and Joe and I, we get together uh, every couple of months and we do this and we, we belong to the Lord and we love him. And uh, and there is genuine relationship. I was just yelling at Joe just a minute ago. <laughs> Through the glass into the control room. <laughs> That's right, abusing him. That's part of community. But uh, uh, as, as we invite listeners uh, to sort of experience this community and the community of uh, our guests who come with us, many yeah. of whom we all have relationships with. Well, the way I'm looking at it is that for me uh, to have to be coming to this place, Franklin, Tennessee, to record these programs with you, as you say, we come down every couple of months and record a number of programs and we're then on the air each week. It has um, really opened my eyes to the value of community. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I see how it works. I've been in churches my whole life, and I know the value of community in mm-hmm. church. But to see the, the value of community 
in friendships and intertwining relationships with people throughout the community, racial reconciliation through the empty hands. Yeah. This has all been very, very helpful to me. Well, I hope what it does uh, as people listen to this radio program is give them, uh, if they don't have this in their own experience, is give them a, a real hunger for it. And uh, not so that you can go out and sort of artificially try to create it, because you can't create it. Mm. But what you do is you begin uh, in prayer to go to the Lord and say, give me real community. Right. That's what we did all those years ago, not knowing what community was. We mm. asked for it, and God gave it mm. to us. The uh, goal of our website, by the way, is not to be, again, a replacement no. for community. It's to facilitate community, to yeah. model community, and uh, we do have some helpful resources there. I, I, I hope the people that go to the website will find those resources helpful. Thanks, Michael. You have been listening to In the Studio with Michael Card, and we hope that you'll take advantage of all that is available for you at www.michaelcard.com. When you visit, be sure to look into how you can become a member of what we call the community. As we said, this is not a replacement, but a tool for growth in your walk with Christ. And as always, you can order online any one of Michael's books, CDs, and even DVD, including his latest project, Scribbling in the Sand. Also listed is the complete schedule, so you can find out when Michael will be touring in your area. There's a lot of developments, and you'll want to keep up to date with the ministry at www.michaelcard.com. Now, what we're most excited about is the audio streaming that is now available on the radio page. Also, you can order a CD copy of this or any in-the-studio broadcast. See if you'd like to sign up to automatically have copies of each week's broadcast sent to you. And we have transcripts for those who are members of the community. A lot is waiting for you, so be sure to come to michaelcard.com and stay current with all that's going on. And we appreciate all the messages we receive. Here's one that came in from a listener who has this to say. It's a wonderful show. Thank you so much for ministering through it. My Saturday night consists of Mexican food with my husband, Ravi Zacharias, and Michael Card. It's pretty much written in stone, and I have no desire to change it. You bless me. Well, we hope you'll send your comments to us as well as your questions about the Bible or the Christian life. Our email address is in the studio at michaelcard.com. That's in the studio at michaelcard.com. Our program engineer is Kenny Ferris. Our producer is Joe Carlson. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for being with us in the studio with Michael Card. In the Studio with Michael Card is a production of Community Broadcasting and the Moody Broadcasting Network.